Good morning and happy Resurrection Day. My name is Bumsa, and it's a joy to celebrate the resurrection of our living hope, Jesus Christ, with you today. Our scripture for the day comes from John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know that the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to him, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm kind of a space nerd. Um, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, and um, I like to say we, we put a man on the moon there. And uh, a lot of my friends' fathers or mothers worked uh, for NASA, worked for the Marshall Space Flight Center there. My grandfather was an engineer with the uh, defense missile, uh, restaurant arsenal there. Uh, so here in Atlanta, you know, we get excited when the Braves win, but in Huntsville, we get excited with a successful rocket launch. And um, it, was a, it was a great childhood, and, and I loved growing up there, and I loved that kind of part of uh, my story in Huntsville. And so from that time to this time, I've just been interested in space and exploring space and looking into space. There's a lot of talk about that going on right now with the new James Webb telescope um, that just went up late last year. Um, and just people so hopeful of what, what we might see out there. Now, one of the big discussion points, if you're also kind of a space nerd, is that people are looking for life out there. Is, is there other life in the universe or are we alone in the universe? And, and what they always look for when looking for life or trying to discern, is there any life out there? What, what Really what they're looking for is water. Because you, you can't have life without water. And so people think, well, if you find water, maybe there will be some life there. Life, in a very real sense, is dependent on water. We have been studying John chapter 7, if you were here last week and on Good Friday, and all of this action that Bumps had just read, it's all happening in a very particular feast that these Jews threw every year. It's a very 
important part of their calendar, the Feast of Booths. And at the Feast of Booths, it was a harvest celebration. In fact, uh, Jewish people, if you have Jewish friends, they still celebrate this feast. They call it Sukkot. And they still celebrate it today. But it's a harvest feast. It's a celebration of God's provision that God has provided. And they would, the way that they would celebrate it in, in biblical times is the Jewish people would go to Jerusalem and they would live in these little tents or booths. That's why it's called the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Tents. And they would live in these little tents and remember the time that they were leaving Egypt, going to the promised land in the wilderness, living in tents, living in these booths. And they were remembering how God provided for them then, and they're worshiping him and and hopeful for his provision now. And, And kind of the central prayer, one of the central features of the Feast of Booths is this idea that God will provide water. It's centered around the events of Exodus 17. If you remember that story, they're in the wilderness, they're away from Egypt, and there's no water. They're in a dry and parched land. And Moses goes up to the rock in the middle of the wilderness, and he strikes the rock with his staff, and water flows from the rock. And God provides, and God takes care of his people, and God gives them water, and therefore he gives them life. And so a lot of this Feast is centered around this idea of God providing water. And at the climax of the feast, on the last day, which is this day that Bumps just read about, the the climax day, the final day of the feast, the chief priest would take a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam and all the people would be gathered. And the temple choir would be singing and they would be singing the Hallel. This is Psalm 1. 13 through 118, and they would be singing, and all the people would be gathered, and all the pilgrims would have palm branches, and they would be waving those branches and holding a piece of citrus fruit that that symbolized the provision of the Lord. And the high priest would come in with this golden pitcher of water right as the temple choir reached the climax of the Hillel. Psalm 118, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Can you see it? Can you see this moment? The choir is singing, the people are waving branches, the the temple is packed with pilgrims. Here comes the high priest carrying this golden pitcher of water. Will God provide water? And as the choir finished singing, everybody in the temple, all those that were gathered there would say, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord three times. And then the high priest with great anticipation, would take this golden pitcher of water and he would pour it out before the Lord as a sign to the people of God's blessing, as a sign to the people of God's provision, as a sign to the people that God would give them life. And it was in this moment, on this final day of the feast, with everybody Looking in, what the high priest was doing, this climactic moment for all the people of Israel that a voice called out from the crowd. If anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And of course, that voice was the voice of Jesus. And his words that day totally changed, totally changed the life of many of those hearers that day. And my hope is that this Easter morning, that these words would totally change our hearts and lives today. There's a lot more to this passage. Maybe we'll get to it next week. But I really wanna focus on just these two verses. If anyone thirsts, let him come to Jesus. Let him come to me, says Jesus, and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I wanna ask two questions with you of this text. First, why do we thirst? And then second, how do we drink? So why do we thirst? Well, obviously the water here is an analogy to something bigger going on. When, when we get thirsty, we need to drink, right? That sustains us, that keeps us alive. But there's an analogy, there, there's something more. Jesus is not talking about that kind of water here. He's saying there's, a, there's another kind of thirst that you may have. We've talked about this many times. It's kind of a central teaching at Christ's covenant. There, there's two Greek words for the word life. One is bios. It's where we get the word biology. It's the reason that when uh, engineers and scientists look into outer space, they're looking for water because life, biology, bios, it, it's dependent on water. But there's another word for this idea of life. And it's this idea of Zoe. And this isn't, this isn't just living. It's not just being alive. It's having a life. Having a meaning. Having a purpose. Having something to guide you. Something to live for. Having a life. A Zoe. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. In fact, he says the living water that will flow from you. That, that word living there. It's Zoe is the root word. Zoe, what you're living for, what's giving shape to your life, what's setting you free. Jesus is saying here, if you really want life, if you really want that kind of life, if you're thirsty for that kind of life, drink from me. If anyone is thirsty for meaning, for purpose, for rest, for satisfaction, let him come to me and drink. You know, in the beginning, when God made us, how we were all designed we weren't thirsty. We didn't have this sense of emptiness in us, this sense of anxiety or fear or worry that we all, we all carry around with us because in the beginning, we were in fellowship with God. That's, that's what we see in Scripture, that God created the world, He created humanity, and there was perfect fellowship. Everything was shalom, you see in Scripture. Everything was well. This word shalom, it's a Hebrew word that's often translated peace, but it, it means more than peace, really. It means that everything was well. Everything was whole. Everything was as it should be. Everybody was, was right because God was in the center of all things. His wisdom was seen as ultimate. And in a world like that, when there's perfect fellowship with God, there's, there's no fear. There's no death. There's 
There's no anxiety. There's no worry. Everything is fully and rightly alive. In, in that time, I believe humanity was more focused on God than we were on ourselves. We weren't focused on ourselves. The Bible tells us that, that the man and the woman, they didn't even know that they were naked. They were so focused on the Lord. There was no shame. There was no worry in them. In fact, in Eden, this garden where the man and the woman lived in this time, there was a central feature of the garden. You know what it was? You know what the central feature in Eden was? A river. <laughs> what else would it be? This symbol of life, of God's flowing provision that was among them. Life was there, not only by us, but Zoe, all was well and right in the world. But of course, sin did enter the world. The man and the woman were deceived by the serpent. They, rather than staying focused on God, rather than living for God's wisdom and glory and being focused on his way, we became self-centered and self-focused and focused on other things. We chased after passions and desires that are not of the Lord. And the man and the woman had to go away from the presence of God, a state that we still experience a life separated from God that now is full of fear and pain and death and anxiety and hate and division and shame and regret. You know, regret, it's one of those things that sticks with us. I've had the chance to talk to a lot of people, even at their death, and oftentimes, those conversations are filled with statements like, I wish I would have been. I wish I would have done. I should have done. There's this shame. There's this thirst that we all have. We, we know we should have done better. We know we should have been better. We know that the condition of our heart is not right. I've given this illustration many times, but it, it is so revealing. If I were to take you, anybody in this room, and say, let me, let me show these people who you really are, right? What's, what's really going on inside your heart? And I were to put on this big screen behind me everything you've ever done, all the good things you've ever done, but also all the bad things you've ever done, all the weird things, all the self-centered things, and the Bible says that, that God not only judges our actions, but our thoughts and intentions, what's really going on inside our heart. What if I could put all your thoughts on this screen? All your good thoughts and charitable thoughts and kind thoughts, but also all your greedy thoughts, lustful thoughts, self-centered thoughts, thoughts of anger, all your intentions, all your good intentions, but all your bad intentions. You know, I've given that illustration in many places. I've given that illustration for years no one's ever taken me up on it. Everybody gets a little squirmy when I start to say that. You know why? Because you know. <laughs> you know. You know what's really going on inside of you. You know that it is not right. It's not as it should be. It's not whole. It's not shalom. It's not Zoe. We know that we're far from the Lord. And so we do all this stuff, right? 
we have this, we're thirsty. And so we do all this stuff. We go get a job and we're so proud of our work and we, we try to achieve and we try to get love in our life and we get friends and we, we save money and we get a nice house and we have a little fun. And, but the thirst never goes away, does it? We never really feel satisfied. The, the Bible has this idea in the New Testament. It's the, it's the Greek dike. And it, and it kind of means it could be translated justification or righteousness, but it, it, the, the, better, the better translation is a showing. We want a decay. We want a showing, right? We want to prove that we actually are all right, that, that we actually are well, that, that, that maybe you could show my video. If I, if I just did just enough, that maybe people would say, well, yeah, but he was justified. He, he's done this or he's done that. He, he's, he has a showing. We want to feel proven, but it's never good enough, is it? Paul Simon says it this way, I'm empty and aching, and I don't know why. Even Bono says, I've run, I've crawled, I've scaled these city walls, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And so we work harder, right? We need a little more success. We need to turn this deal. We need to go on a better vacation. Some people try religion. Well, maybe I could just obey all the rules. I could feel really good about myself. The pastor would would like me and say I'm a good person. Maybe something can relieve me from all this thirst that our souls have. And you know, these Jewish people here in John 7, they're just like us. They wanted a bios, right? They wanted a bios. They wanted water. They wanted a harvest. They knew they needed to eat. But you know what they also wanted? They wanted a Zoe. And so they came to the Feast of Booths and they lived in these tents and maybe I'll get connected to God and maybe the priest will pour out a little more water this year and it'll be a harvest like it's never been before. And finally we'll have enough wealth and influence that people will really recognize that this is our year. And so this was triumphant moment and the choir was singing and everyone looked with great anticipation saying this is gonna be our year. Finally, our thirst is going to be quenched and Jesus speaks into this. No, no. You're, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're looking at the wrong priest. If anyone thirsts, if you really wanna get rid of this thirst that's in your soul, come to me and drink. So we've talked about why we thirst. But secondly, how do we drink? Okay, you may be saying, all right, I knew I'd hear something about Jesus today. But if Jesus is the answer, what, what is this thing? What is the big deal? What, what, what do you even mean when you say drink of Jesus? We were made, we were created to share fellowship with God, right? That's what I just said. The reason we have this thirst and unrest and unsettledness and regret and shame is because we're not in fellowship with God. We, we are outside of the presence of God. And the truth is that God does love us and desires fellowship with us. He desires communion with us just like we desire communion with him, but there's a problem. And it is our sin. And God is just. God is just. We, we have all this sin that has separated from us from God. And God can't just cancel our sin. He can't just forget about our sin. He can't just say, ah, your sin, whatever. That's not justice. That's unrighteousness. God can't do that. God can't celebrate unrighteousness. He can't celebrate sin. 
God can't ignore sin because he's so just. And the justice of God means that he is consistent and virtuous and innocent and right. And here's the deal, that he will settle every account and bring perfect justice. Now that, the justice of God is actually one of the most comforting thoughts that you can have. The justice of God, to know that there is a God in control who will settle, who will rightly and fairly and consistently settle every account. That is an incredibly comforting thought. I had a conversation with a woman on Friday. This woman grew up in a house that was filled with drugs, basically abandoned by her father. No structure, no real hope was given to her. She ended up working at a restaurant but couldn't quite make the bills. She herself, because she was basically raised in a household of drugs, had developed a drug addiction, ended up giving herself over to prostitution, ended up falling into the hands of a pimp who, in order to keep her dependent on him, only gave her more drugs, only messed up her mind and her body more. And night after night after night, she was sold for sex. And you know, the the only thing that I can say to a woman like that The only thing that I can say to somebody who's endured that, who's been treated that way, who has been so undignified, been so undignified in that way, is look, God is just. I don't know why this has happened to you, but God is just. I believe in a God who's going to settle this account. He will punish the wrongdoer. He he will make this right. He doesn't turn an eye to sin like that. You've been so kind You've been so generous to give to these Ukrainian refugee fundraisers that we've been doing, to support ministries that are supporting these Ukrainian refugees. Thank you for that. Last night at dinner, we were having a conversation about these Ukrainian refugees. And, and here's, this, here's the deal. I, I was talking with Paige and some other friends. I said, it's like this, Paige. You're getting on a train. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm fighting a war. I'm probably going to die. I'm probably going to get killed. You're, you're getting on a train with the kids, and, and hopefully you're getting on the train. But you, let's say you do get on the train, and then you go to a country you've never been to. You know nobody there. You have no place to go. You don't know the system. You don't know the language. You're going to land there and hope it works out. And back home, I might die. And this family unit that was intact may be displaced. It may be torn apart forever. What what are we gonna say to a person like that except, look, we believe, and this is a comforting thought, that God is just. In the end of all things, he's gonna settle this. He's gonna make it right. The evildoer will not go unpunished. God will bring his perfect justice, the justice of God. It's actually an incredibly comforting thought. It's an incredibly comforting thought when it applies to the evildoer out there. It's incredibly comforting thought when it applies to the person that has been unjust to you. But it's actually simultaneously a terrifying thought. When you are the evildoer, when your hands are bloody 
before God. God is just. He must act fairly and rightly. But he's also, and we see this all throughout the Bible, he's also merciful and loving. How? How do these two things happen? These same Jewish people that went every year to the Feast of Booze, they also knew their Old Testament. And all throughout the Old Testament, there is a refrain. If you've read the Old Testament in every kind of literature, in the Psalms, in the narrative of the Old Testament, in the prophets, all throughout the Old Testament, it's like this haunting refrain that keeps coming up and it says this, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but... He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love, but he is also just. He will by no means clear the guilty. How? How? If you take the Bible seriously at all, you have to read a passage like this and say, how? How can both the justice of God be maintained and his mercy and love be on display? And the answer is because of the things that we celebrate this weekend. Because of the events of Easter, we were in our sin, separated from God. Do the just justice of God. But instead of punishing us for our sin, God has put forward his son Jesus to bear our sin on our behalf. I wanna read you a passage that, that helps us with this. It's Romans 3. It's a very famous passage. But the, God, the writer Paul says this, Romans 3.21, now the righteousness of God, you know what the word righteousness is there in verse 21? It's that word, dike, the showing, right? Something that proves that you're worthy, something that proves that you have a Zoe, something that proves that you have a real meaning and real value in life. The dike, the righteousness of God has been put forward, has been manifested apart from the law. Now, this is surprising. It's not achievement, right? All these things we try, our job, our obedience, our friends, our great vacations, all these things we try to make ourselves feel justified, feel special, feel like we have a showing. What this passage says, it says, no, the real decay, the real showing, the real righteousness of God has been put forward outside of the law. The righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is why Jesus can say to the people gathered at the Feast of Booze in John 7 that we're so hopeful, maybe this is the year, maybe it's gonna be good for us, maybe we're finally gonna feel at peace with ourselves. He can say to them, no, if you're thirsty, come to me. And this is why he can say the same thing to you. If you're thirsty, if you're thirsty, if your soul thirsts, come to me and drink. Let's go on in Romans 3. It says, for there's no distinction. Here's our video, right? For all have sinned. <laughs> Everybody's video is bad. 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation, as the, as the one who would pay the price, as the one who would, who would satisfy justice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. God is displaying his righteousness at this time and at this time that God might be just, upholding his justice, punishing the sin in Jesus who he's put forward and the justifier, the merciful justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does this all mean? It means this, that God is perfectly just. He will settle every account. We can count on this, but he's also merciful and kind and loving. A price in order to maintain God's justice had to be paid for sin. But if we were left to pay that price, we would be damned. Separated from God forever because God's justice and holiness and mercy is eternal. But God has shown rich mercy to us, has extended mercy to us while settling his justice by putting the punishment that we deserved on himself in the person of Jesus Christ. God has always existed for all time in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what the Bible tells us, how the Bible describes the nature of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how the Bible helps us with our little feeble human minds to understand how deep and powerful the love is between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is just what I just said, between the first person, second person, and third person of the Trinity, how the Bible describes that love is as the love of a father to his son as the love of a child to his parents, as the love of a parent to his child. And let me just tell you, that is a profound love. I speak to this with some authority. <laughs> I speak to this as a son, as one who has a father who loves me and who showers love on me, who is proud of me, who, who just finds so much joy in me, and I know that so deeply. And I love him. I'm proud to be his son. That is a profound love, the love of a father for a son, love of a son for his father. But I also know this as a father, as one that God has given three children to, who I love profoundly. It's hard to even describe this kind of love. I was telling somebody this week about the moment that your first child is born, I said, nothing will prepare you for that. They're, they're, they're about to have a baby. I said, there's nothing to prepare you for that. I tried to prepare myself for it. You know, I tried to watch a lot of like emotional movies. <laughs> I tried to get my heart ready. I tried to prepare myself. But 10 years ago, when my precious little daughter, Imrianna, was born, nothing in this world could have prepared me for that, literally, and I, and I mean this as, as literal as I understand human emotion, I felt my heart grow. I was overwhelmed 
with love for her. And I feel the same way about my two boys. You know, I didn't cry for 10 years, basically from my childhood until the day I got married. I didn't cry. I didn't cry at all. I thought there was something wrong with me. I was like, I guess I'm just a cold, emotionless man. And then I got married, and on my wedding day, I couldn't stop crying. And then I had children, and I'm, I'm crying now. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make here is this. The love of a father, mother, to a child is a profound love. The love of a child, a father, is a profound love. And this is no ordinary father and child, father and son relationship. This is God. This is the eternal God. There's no sin. There's no hurt. There's no disappointment. It's perfect holiness and righteousness. It's eternal. Yet, because of God's rich and immeasurable love for you and for you and for you, God the Father was willing to put forward his son as a propitiation for your sin. God the Son was willing to take on the record of your sin to be forsaken by his Father. On, on behalf of you, Jesus came to live on earth a totally righteous life. He, he achieved a perfect decay, a perfect righteousness. He was always in step with the Father, yet for our sake, he went to the cross. He was willing to pay the price for us. God is paying the price of justice so that his justifying mercy might be extended. As the text says, he is both the just and the merciful justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He will by no means clear the guilty. And what a sacrifice. What a cost. His judgment has been poured out on the cross. But he is abounding in steadfast love. I want you to think about how God showed this steadfast love. How God showed this profound love for you, the Father. The Father, profound love for himself, was so willing to pay the price for your sin. Was so willing to forgive you of your sin. Was so willing to maintain his justice, yet show you mercy that he put forward his own son to die in your place, to face his Justice, what could be more precious to him? Let me just tell you, I love you. I mean that. But I wouldn't scratch one of my children for you. For your evil. For your greed, for your pride. I'm not gonna make my kids suffer. For you? Much less listen to them cry out to me in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me. This is a profound love. 
that the Father would willingly send his Son as the propitiation for our sin. And the Son, this is a profound love, so willing to pay the price for your sin that he endured our hell. The son who always knew fellowship with the father. He was willing to be forsaken by the father, to fear the anger, to feel the anger of the father, to cry out on the cross, feeling something that he's never felt before, separation from God, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a profound love. And he was forsaken so that we could be set free. Jesus on the cross was willing to take on our record so that now a righteousness from God, a perfect decay, a perfect showing has been revealed. And it can be given to you in faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Here's the question. Do you believe? Do you believe that you're loved like this? You know what else Jesus said on the cross? Here's Jesus. Always had fellowship with God. Jesus, who his whole life had felt this river of God's love coming from him. You know what he said on the cross? In a loud voice, he cried out, I thirst. I thirst. And literally, he thirsted. His bios was being taken away, but there's more going on. I thirst. I thirst. I am parched. I am dry. I am being put out. I am being poured out. I thirst. And he thirsted so that he can say to you, if you are thirsty, if you are thirsty, come to me and drink. And as you drink, rivers of living water will well up inside of you. I stand before you today to say, you want a Zoe? You want to be satisfied? I stand before you today to as clearly as I know how say this. God loves you in a profound way. And he has demonstrated that love for you in a profound way. And through faith in Jesus, as you look to Jesus, you can be forgiven. You can have life. You can be restored to God. You can have a perfect righteousness. You don't have to always be proving yourself. You can have a justification that won't let you down. You can have a real life that fills you. You can receive from God, from God, the Almighty, a love that lifts you. So drink. That's the invitation. Drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, says our Lord Jesus. Drink. And the good news of this day, this resurrection day, is this. Listen, it's not just a myth. <laughs> so this is just a story we tell to make ourselves feel better. It's been proven. Jesus came in human history, in human form. He really was raised from the dead. 
God himself has done this for you and the tomb is empty. So drink. God has loved you with a profound love. He's demonstrated this love to you in a profound way. So drink of this. If anyone is thirsty, let him come. Let him drink. Let's pray. In this moment, in in the stillness of your heart, hear these things. Hear this profound love that God has for you. Thank him for this love. Praise him for this love. In this moment, confess. Confess your need to him. Get honest with God. Confess your sin to the Lord that you are a sinner. You are needy. Don't hide from God. He knows. He's got the movie. He knows. Just confess. Just let it all out. And know that even though our sins are many, his mercy is more. And the price that Jesus has paid on the cross on our behalf can satisfy even the deepest sin. And so believe in this mercy. Believe in this profound love. Believe in this profound grace that God is giving you. Drink from it now. Believe it. Look to Jesus now. Believe these things. And as we stay in a spirit of prayer, I I ask you just to stand quietly and, and I just want you to pray with me. So you stand there in your seats. Go ahead and stand. But just stay in a spirit of prayer with me. And I just want to lead us in a prayer. Pray with me. Father, we are thirsty. We are so thirsty. We've tried everything, Lord. And it does not satisfy. But Lord, you satisfy. We were made for you. And Jesus so satisfies. Because of Jesus, we can be satisfied. We believe, Lord. We believe. We believe. And so, Father, I pray even now, as we sing, as we worship, as we even scatter and enjoy the rest of this beautiful day, Lord, you would just fill us. You would fill us. Fill us, Lord. We'd be satisfied. Fill us, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name.